0: Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The
1: Hertie school.
0: school. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions.
1: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. It's uh, my pleasure to welcome you all here. My name is Bosak I'm a professor of international law at the Hertie School of Governance, and I specialize in international and comparative human rights law and on human rights implementation uh, in my research. I'm absolutely delighted uh, to, to welcome uh, this debate. Um, as you may have seen from the title, uh, this is a debate we're going to have a debate on the future of strategic litigation. And we will try to be quite um, firm and honest with a debate structure. So hopefully you will see the uh, presenters uh, and, the, and the team up here and all of us actually engaging in a, in a principal debate. I'm very honored to welcome uh, the chair of the debate uh, and one of the key debaters. Uh, the chair of today's debate is uh, Jim Galston. He He's the executive director of the Open Society Justice Initiative. Uh, It is one of the biggest, globally biggest, uh, non-governmental organizations uh, who work globally on human rights strategic litigation across um, all ranges of continents. Um, And uh, as one of the debaters, we have Wolfgang Kalik. He's the founder, uh, executive director of the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin. And we were just uh, talking about uh, this uh, amazing organization. And from what I understand, it is actually not only one of the biggest strategic litigation NGOs in Germany, it is the biggest, but uh, we think that it might also be the biggest in continental Europe. So I think we're very well placed uh, with Jim uh, chairing this debate and uh, Wolfgang taking part in this debate on the future of strategic litigation. I will be joining uh, this team as the bad cop. As you know, academics are very comfortable uh, with some critical uh, roles in these types of discussions. Uh, I hope you, uh, some of you don't, will not hate me too much uh, after, after this, uh, but I will also be really looking forward to engaging in this uh, with our debaters. I also would like to extend a really, really warm welcome to some of you in this room. Um, uh, Some of you do know this, and some of you you don't know this. But uh, this week, we have been hosting the Open Society Justice Initiative Strategic Litigation Summer School at Hertie. We have participants that have arrived from all over the globe uh, for a whole week of uh, discussing and learning from one another on human rights strategic litigation. They've been here since Monday. Uh, They're going to finish off uh, this uh, by tomorrow. So I'd like to really extend them a very special welcome because it's wonderful. We have an incredible uh, wealth of expertise right now in this room concerning human rights uh, litigation. So very, very warm welcome to everyone uh, from that group as well. I just have one little announcement. Uh, Today is the beginning of our sort of more public discussions on human rights and strategic litigation. Tomorrow we will have an opening uh, keynote speech uh, by Cesar Garavito. Some of you may know him uh, very well in person or from his academic and also from his advocacy work. He will be delivering the closing keynote speech uh, for the summer school, but we would like to make this uh, also public, so if anybody would like to come back to Hertie tomorrow at 1.30, exactly to this room uh, you're very welcome to listen to Cesar Garavito he's the founder of De Justicia founder of the global uh, justice and human rights program at University of Andes in Colombia and it will be a delightful continuation uh, to what we will uh, start today so uh, please do uh, come back if you can tomorrow at 1:30 Harti School of Governance uh, is a school of public policy Uh, We are not a school of law. This is an interdisciplinary uh, university, as you know. We focus on law, politics, economics, um, maybe a little bit of philosophy, uh, a little bit of sociology. Uh, But I think uh, the school really understands the importance of human rights in public policy making and implementation. And in order to really accentuate this, uh, the school has decided to set up a center for fundamental rights, uh, which will be up and running from the 1st of September. So I'm really delighted that there will be a lot more emphasis on human rights at the school with this research center. One of the things uh, this research center is going to do is to debate. We think that in hard times, when human rights are under serious amounts of pressure, Uh, You know, sometimes you do not have to preach to choirs, but you have to really debate and engage people in sustained debates about why human rights have been historically very important, why they are still very important, and why they will be very important also in the future. So I hope to also welcome you to our future debates on human rights issues. Um, So keep tuned after the 1st of September as well. So welcome all, let me just uh, invite our chair and our debater uh, onto the stage now.
3: Hello, can you hear me? Fantastic. Thank you, Basak, Um, and uh, thank you all um, for uh, coming. It's not often, I have to say, if Hertie is starting a school of uh, fundamental rights, it's a, it's a promising omen that a discussion about strategic litigation in the heart of Berlin on a very warm Thursday evening has gathered this, uh, this kind of uh, broad attendance. It's, it's, uh, it's promising. It's very promising. Um, so uh, I, I want to follow on uh, Bashak's kind, welcoming remarks um, to suggest that we're going to conduct a discussion in the spirit of the interface between practice and um, academic inquiry. And um, so I want to encourage the, the, uh, the debaters to um, really let, let their ideas flow, and um, to, uh, to, we're going to air some candid thoughts that, um, as we were saying earlier, until recently, um, folks in the human rights movement may have been somewhat shy um, about or maybe maybe have not given um, uh, sufficient public airing to. But I think it's very clear that we're in a time now um, when uh, public discussion of these issues um, is both needed and happening. And I think it's a great contribution that, uh, that all of us here are, are, are playing a role in this. Um, so I think, in some ways, it's an ideal time to talk about um, strategic human rights litigation. Um, on the one hand, um, we've had some you know, pretty recent uh, real proof that, uh, that litigation uh, on behalf of rights has some real power. Um, you know, in the past year, we've seen uh, landmark judicial decisions from a number of places in the, in the realm of climate change, from Colombia, from the United States, from the Netherlands, from elsewhere. Um, the Court of Justice of the European Union has, um, has been uh, path-breaking in the area of digital rights and privacy. Um, we have seen the South African Constitutional Court really standing up to, um, to resist and help the country survive the greatest threat to its democracy um, since the end of apartheid. And just this week. Um, we saw the Botswana High Court, in fact, with the contribution of one of the, um, the uh, members of the, uh, the student body uh, here in this summer school, um, uh, render a major judgment decriminalizing uh, same-sex sexual conduct between consensual, uh, consenting adults. So there have been some real marks of achievement. On the other hand... Um, With the rise of what many people have called populist authoritarianism, there are many names, but we know the trend, many of the assumptions on which human rights litigation um, has been premised, you know, the fact that the world is kind of moving in the direction of liberal values, um, that once democratic states wouldn't tip back into autocratic rule, those assumptions have really been upended. Um, And human rights in some places has actually become a dirty word. Um, some people are pronouncing it's end times, it's demise, it's irrelevance. And within the field of human rights, when we talk about what's not working, the lawyers, the litigators, they get it worse, man, right? I mean, you know, if human rights is elitist, human rights litigation is more elitist. If human rights is out of touch, human rights litigators are way out of touch. If human rights activists are arrogant, well, who can be more arrogant than lawyers? So um, we've got the good and the bad, um, and they're both very much coming to the fore. So it's excellent that we have these two um, real prime figures uh, in the field uh, to help us uh, see if we can gain some greater understanding of what's going on. as, as Basik mentioned, Wolfgang Kallock founded the European Center for Constitutional Human Rights. Uh, he served as General Secretary and Legal Director. But Wolfgang, of course, is a pathbreaking human rights litigator around the world. Uh, he'd previously been at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Um, he was involved in the litigation against um, one former United States Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, um, and he's been honored with a series of, of uh, well-known awards. And uh, Bashak Chali herself, of course, um, is the director of the uh, Center of Fundamental Rights here, professor of international law at the Hurdy School, um, director of the Center for Global Public Law at Koç University in Istanbul is an editor and leader of numerous academic societies and one of the leading paramount experts on human rights in general and particularly on the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. So there really could, could hardly be two better people um, to, uh, to stand off tonight. Um, so what we're going to do is, um, as Basrik mentioned, we're gonna, um, Wolfgang has agreed to play The pro uh, role, the good cop, um, on behalf of litigation, and Bostrick is going to be more of the skeptic. Um, But we recognize that we all have, we all, we all recognize that that we're entertaining these views, um, and and we all, we all recognize the, the, the the that there are good things and and some weaknesses here. So I think we're we're asking them to play archetypes, as it were, and we thank them for doing that. Um, We're going to have a discussion um, amongst the three of us, and then I'd like to open it up, especially since we've got such a fantastically broad audience here. Um, I'm hoping we've got the microphonic facilities to allow us to have an interactive discussion uh, in the second part of this. But why don't we begin, if we could? um, We've now used the term strategic human rights litigation for about 15 minutes why don't we ask what we're talking about, um, at least briefly, Um, does the word strategic actually mean anything? I mean, does anyone knowingly admit to engaging in litigation that is not strategic? Wolfgang, what are we talking about? Mm.
0: Uh, thank you very much, Jim and Bazak, for, for the uh, welcome here. Um, it's probably the first time that I'm called a good cop. And, <laughs> and I have some difficulties to accommodate with that role. Um, I mean, um, I would, yes, there is one way to describe our activities, our legal action as strategic human rights uh, um, litigation. But uh, first of all, I would I would rather use a broader term, and this is um, the progressive or radical use of law in very different situations. And uh, my position, our position here is we are based in a northwest country, in a NATO country, and uh, are litigating partly against uh, those who are are based here, companies and and state officials, but also connected to organizations in the global south. So we are involved in a lot of transnational litigation. Um, And that is very much different than, for example, lawyers in Turkey or lawyers in Colombia, who mainly um, litigate in in the domestic era. Why do I think that strategic litigation is not the right term to capture? Um, Our work here, and and those whom we are connected to, uh, first of all, a lot of the, the big successes in this field over the last 20, 30 countries were not at all strategic. They were very opportunistic. It's about seizing opportunities to begin with Pinochet. And um, uh, in the best case, we have, we have a piece, we have a legal action which is meant to be strategic and which shows after a couple of years that it was in a way strategic. But I would um, rather use the word strategic to, be, to describe our own, let's say, vision or mandate. So um, there are, uh, we, we carry out pieces of litigation which are in the best case part of a more strategic concept but the concept is only strategic when our litigation is contextualized in a political and legal analyze when it's when it serves in a way political and legal struggles and when it's not about litigation only so therefore yes uh, it's a lit- strategic litigation or litigation is a modus operandi but it doesn't capture uh, our work at all it should be much more and to 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 reply to your first remark um, it's not by by chance that organizations who subscribe to litigation are not debating about it because we are all dependent from funding and we are all dependent from public attention. And in order to get as much public attention and as much funding as possible, we sometimes think that it's better to describe our work as the most successful piece of work wherever, and this is really an obstacle to self-reflection. And so I think it's, it's, it's a good opportunity uh, here and, and in other occasions over the last months um, to, 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 to be much more honest and much more self-critical with what we have achieved and what we can achieve.
3: Thank you for that uh, inspiration, Wolfgang. Basak, I just want to invite you. Anything you want to add or compliment on the question of what we're talking about when we use the concept of strategic litigation?
2: I mean, I think uh, there is a definition of strategic litigation and uh, there is a definition of strategic human rights litigation, but it's full of dangers as well. So I'll start with my my negative... uh, Era already. So when we say strategic when some say it is strategic human rights litigation, the, the idea is that you'd like to seek an outcome that's not just about one victim that you're trying to affect social change in relation to a whole society or in relation to a larger group of um, people. There's a tension in that because you're using a, an individual victim situation instrumentally in order for a, a greater cause. Uh, now you can say that's a noble cause. Let's find the right victim, uh, right uh, person who has been subject to the human rights violation to change the world. Uh, and already there you can see that there could be some tensions because uh, some some people may not want to be part of a larger change. And some do want to have a larger change. But I think there is a there is an understood sort of uh, definition of strategic litigation is that, that is more beyond an individual and their rights. Uh, that's what you're trying to engage in.
3: Great. Well, thank you very much. Let's, let's turn then um, to uh, the question of whether, in fact, strategic litigation can help promote long-lasting human rights changes. Um, Wolfgang, I gather you've got a relatively positive view or at least some positive examples where you think this has been accomplished?
0: Yes. I mean, uh, Pinochet is one example, and, and the whole... Um, the whole idea about holding f- powerful and formally powerful actors accountable to law uh, is an achievement of the last 20 years of the yeah of, of lawyers of law firms, but above all of, um, of civil society organizations, of organizations uh, who especially were active in the global south. and I mean, I don't have to instrumentalize the Argentinian human rights movement they, know what they want, and they use us, the lawyers, in the best possible way, um, which is in Argentina is, of course, one of the most striking example of a very developed and very combative human rights movement ab- ab- uh, around the family members of the disappeared, the mothers, the grandmothers, and the sons and the, and the daughters. And they showed us very intelligent, mo- uh, intelligent use of very diff- different legal tools domestic litigation, inter-American court of human rights litigation, universal jurisdiction, UN mechanisms, plus social mobilization. I mean, they mobilize every year and even more, hundreds and thousands of people. They use arts, they use theater, um, and so on. And this is... How it has to look like in in the best case obviously not everywhere the conditions are like in argentina and there We come to the downsides when it uh, when it goes against f- f- um, Already beaten uh, Dictators from the global south which ha- have served their role. It's definitely easier Um, then enforcing uh, social and economic rights against powerful actors from the global north and that is something uh, we have to we have to be very much aware of and I and and I think the the, uh, If we are aware of that if we are aware of the the uh, the power relations which are in play here We should not allow us and others to measure us only for let's say short-term outcomes This is a political process and I mean, I don't measure a demonstration if, um, if uh, uh, which I ask for climate change. Uh, um, uh, um, if uh, on Monday after the Sunday uh, demonstration, uh, the policy of climate change is on stake. No, um, we have to. We have to be more political. And this is probably the biggest weakness of the human rights movements, as such, uh, or at at least of of leading Northwestern scholars and Northwestern practitioners who try to describe their work as neutral and apolitical in order to achieve more. And I think we have to repoliticize human rights work and we have to talk about global social rights, which is much more than the human rights which are, uh, which are established in, 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 in legal conventions.
3: Repoliticize human rights. Well, let me, let me just ask you. I mean, we've seen, I mean, the, the Pinochet case is, um, is iconic. It's for many people what, in the United States, the Brown versus Board of Education case on school segregation used to represent this this, this, uh, amazing capacity of a single legal action to transform um, attitudes and and actions beyond. Um, And yet, you know, we have seen examples in recent years of a number of countries... Um, I can think of the Philippines, I can think of Turkey, I can think of the United States, there are others, where human rights litigation was fairly deeply embedded, and yet we've seen massive political reverses um, in a way that is directly contrary to human rights. So how do we take account of those examples and nonetheless have a positive story to tell?
0: Uh, I don't need to tell positive stories. I mean, no. I thought that's what you were here for. I'm sorry. sorry. No, sorry. I I consider myself in a political struggle, and I have to live with failures in this political struggles, or I'm aware and I'm prepared for that, or not. And so I'm not here to to, to paint positive pictures. And uh, um, you asked me about repoliticizing the human rights movement. Um, I mean, the two... Probably biggest human rights movements in the world was the workers' movement and the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century and the women's movement, the movement for women's rights, who didn't describe their work as as, as, as human rights. And I think we have to learn from them and we have to think of a broader term of human rights than the let's say narrow-minded human rights movement of the last 20-30 years is, is, is thinking about. And then um, I think um, uh, we don't need we are not in the position to tell about our successes and, um, and write positive stories. But there are some of obviously there are some positive stories to write about. I mean the the, the the fact that that human rights groups and organizations all over the world are connected now and are able to carry out uh, serious pieces of litigation um, which you know uh, involve litigation at the Indian Supreme Court as well as litigation against a Swiss chemical company or a German, uh, a German uh, textile uh, corporation, I think that's a step uh, um, ahead. Um, that is, a, that is a, a very good organizational response to, to, to recent globalization which was driven obviously by powerful economic actors and by military and secret services and obviously we're not we we're, we're not as strong as we could be but as i said it's it's a political and legal struggle
3: so thank you very much bashak so we've got some examples which i think you would no doubt concede are are examples of, of of successes measured some way but you know what do you say to the to the notion that um, you know, you can't expect miracles overnight. These things take time. This is a political struggle. Litigation has a role to play. We do see advances. We can litigate in different courts around the world. We're more connected, etc. What's What's the matter with that?
2: I think there are deeper problems. You know, it's not about, like, how many people is able to connect uh, across um, how many jurisdictions. So I think there are about five problems. I will call them deep uh, or more structural problems. The the first thing is you, you turn to courts uh, to gain uh, human rights um, successes. Uh, courts are um, you know, we, we imagine them to be independent and impartial, but anyone who studies a little bit of sociology, of law, we know that courts are very much embedded in political realities. Uh, and uh, courts move when everyone else moves. So if you have a very conducive political environment Uh, around and then the court delivers a fantastic judgment. I think Pinochet is a story like that. And if you don't have uh, the political environment moving in a good direction, uh, courts become very disappointing. So you can knock on the doors of the courts, but if the timing is not right, if the political environment is not conducive, uh, these kind of efforts uh, usually fail. So this is the constrained view of courts and judiciary, uh, which sometimes uh, some lawyers appreciate and others uh, are maybe a little bit more um, not naive, but sort of not wanting to see that uh, as, a, as a constraint.
3: Just the- before you go on, if I could interrupt, I apologize. But just because it's just such a nice counterpoint, Wolfgang, I, could you just uh, respond to that? I mean, you're saying let's we need to be more political. And here's a critique that says, in fact, one of the problems is courts are embedded in politics. So when the political culture is favorable, you'll get a decent decision. But when it's not, you won't. Uh,
0: look, there are situations where it's an existential need to litigate. And that is, for example, our friends, let's say, in Gaza or in Turkey, um, they, they have to use the law. It's, it's, a, it's a question of self-defense. That's the one thing. I mean, if you are in prison, you have to use the law. Uh, You have to you have to defend yourself outside and inside the courtroom. And I I don't say nothing more and nothing less than that. But of course, it's also a a tool which which uh, uh, which uh, which is complementary to political and social mobilization. And uh, so I completely agree with you. You don't you, you shouldn't start with a naive vision that the court is delivering, you know, the, 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 a, a new world in, in form of a judgment
3: Great, thank you Vasek, I interrupted you, please
2: Okay, so a, a second big problem has to do with um, legal doctrine uh, so, you know, we, we, we try to go to courts because we think we can't get things from politics. Maybe the politics is not working very well, so we're hoping that by going to court, by using law, we're going to be successful. But there are quite a lot of legal doctrines that actually block uh, significant changes. What I have in mind is things like statute of limitations, exhaustion of domestic uh, remedies, uh, what is a justiciable right, what is not a justiciable right. So. Every lawyer, and most of you are here lawyers, you know that you have a real case, and then you have to fit it in into the law and your real situation or the the major human rights issue will never fit the law perfectly because the law and the real case, they never fit. Somebody has to do it and of course, that's the work of the lawyers. But sometimes when you're trying to fit it in, you're actually compromising uh, quite a lot on what the major issues are. So I think that's also sort of try to fit human rights into litigation. You're sometimes actually distorting some of the issues even though with goodwill because you're trying to um, sort of get something. Let me say something else about the, the the last bit. Even when you're successful, imagine the successful case, you squeezed your human rights issue into the law, you managed to get it through the courtroom, and the court did deliver a judgment. Um, what next? Unless you manage to go to a court that strikes down legislation, uh, which are not that many on this planet, I have to say, you just have a judgment uh, in your hand. Uh, So the question of remedies, the question of how a judgment gets implemented, how the law then changes, how the policy changes, all of this is completely beyond the control of the lawyer. Uh, so this is another process. So sometimes when you win uh, at a court, uh, and this is a big debate also, uh, not in the US, but in many places, you keep on losing. Even though the judgment is a win, uh, the outcome is not going to be, and everyone will say, who doesn't know of the first uh, African Commission on Human Rights case in this, uh, in this audience, the Sarac versus Nigeria case? Does anyone not know Serac versus Nigeria? It's the first case, it's the Ogoni people, it's Shell, it's the Nigerian military government, it's the first case of the African Commission. That is a fully unimplemented judgment to this day. So you know the case, you can read it in the textbooks, and then if you say, what happened to that case? Nothing. Nothing has absolutely happened uh, because the remedies weren't there. So these are some serious uh, serious issues, but I'll go on. you got
3: so much more to give. All right, that's great, thank you. Can I ask you, Bashak? though, I mean, accepting much of what you say, um, if litigation is so powerless to affect change, why is it that powerful figures, including governments, go out of their way to resist it, discredit it, and shut it down? Why did David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, say about one judgment that it made him sick to his stomach and lead the United Kingdom to continue to threaten to this day to withdraw from the European Court of Human Rights. Why, when the Southern African Development Committee uh, Tribunal, Community Tribunal, issued a judgment against Zimbabwe, was the reaction, all right, let's just shut down this tribunal, Why, when Donald Trump doesn't like decisions that judges in the United States issue, does he rant and rave and say that they're fake judges or Obama judges, etc.? Why do these people get upset about the judgments if they don't matter?
2: I mean, is it that they... Get upset about the judgments or they actually have have no respect for the judgments, right? I mean you can you can see it in in two ways. I mean, you know, when David Cameron said I'm so sick about the, the judgment that prisoners can vote, which is not what that judgment said. Of course, there's a, always a political distortion about what that is. If you look at the, the case, which is a 2004 case from the European Court of Human Rights, that judgment got never really implemented, and you know the case is now completely closed, and there has been an absolutely minor, absolutely minor change uh, in relation to that. So what he has done is he has used again his his implementation powers by talking about it, and then actually. Uh, blocking it. So they are very powerful veto players. Uh, and and this is a problem, as I said, it goes out of the hands of the lawyers because the political process is constantly able to act as veto players. So if they don't like your judgment, uh, they do exactly these types of things, which means that you know when we go to court to effect change, but if the political interlocutors are not you know, in the same page with us, it's not successful.
3: I want to go back to Wolfgang, but I want to just stick with you for one minute, if I may, Bashek, just because we at the Justice Initiative and at Open Society did a series of reports over the last several years about the various kinds of impacts that strategic litigation can produce. And one of the most telling findings for me, anyway, was that it's for some people, it's not so much in the realm of, did I get compensation? Did somebody get prosecuted? Did a law get... Um, struck down as what's the personal effect on victims and survivors and again and again and not universally but we found that for individual people going to court the mere fact of having their story heard in an official forum with powerful people in front of them actually listening to them and sometimes when they win Regardless of implementation, simply having their narrative officially affirmed, you told the truth, what you said was right, mattered a heck of a lot to them. How do we take that into account with a skeptical attitude about strategic litigation?
2: I can't contest that, right. That's a level where I have to <laughs> i mean, of course it matters uh, for for the for the individual person who've actually gone through huge amounts of personal pain going through. I don't know if you have, have if you ever gone through litigation. it's a very difficult, it's a very painful process for the persons who are involved in it. It's a massive risk taking and people people do it, and I have a huge amount of respect uh, for everyone that does it. It does matter, but the issue is with the strategic notion of a litigation nothing changes beyond that victim. And the thing is, sometimes they could be subject to a repeat violation, right? So they get a judgment and they say, I was recognized. Uh, We have so many cases like that where the same person could be subject to the same violation a few weeks or a few months later. Um, In terms of truth and recognition, uh, I think there is also some some really important work because there is a lot of denial after the judgment. So even if something happens in a judgment, if the political process doesn't take it on, uh, as you know from many countries in the world, we have a very powerful force to reproduce stories of denial, that something didn't really happen like that. The court said it, but it got it wrong. Uh, they said it, but it didn't really say the other one, and things like that. So even for truth and reconciliation and finding historical facts, um, you know, a judgment doesn't change how people build historical uh, narratives about past injustices.
3: Thank you very much. Wolfgang, I want to give you one more shot here before we move on to another topic. But we've heard now from Baschek. you've you got the instru- instru- instrumentalizing of victims. You, you addressed that, and we can talk more about that. But I heard two other criticisms as well. I wondered if you wanted to address one that that um, legal doctrine is inherently um, fixed, rigid, not always adaptable, and the effort to put it in the box um, that the doctrine creates is in itself confining, limiting, and not very helpful. And the question of, which you're of course so familiar with, the lack of implementation of getting this wonderful declaration, and so what? What do we do with that?
0: Yeah, let's talk about the restrictions of the law, and I couldn't but agree, but I would go a little bit further than you. I mean. Uh, law is often a part of the problem. that's, 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 a, that's a clear thing. And uh, as I said, look at the, the look how, how the workers movement and the women's movement dealt with law. They were very much aware that uh, law is, 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 is part of the system which established uh, an order of property uh, which is unbearable, which leads to poverty and, and social injustice uh, all over the world. And so I, I, I couldn't but agree. Um, but obviously still we have to we have to we have to con- we have to contest that we have to we have to Use the loopholes of the law and we have to ask for more law and that is uh, a, a Pragmatic and utopian vision at the same time, but the good thing about human rights law it, it has the potential of it bears a potential of utopia it bears, a, look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Look at it. This is something, if the world um, would take that serious, that would be a wonderful vision, a wonderful universal um, uh, um, vision. But as the German uh, legal philosopher Christoph Menke uh, put it out, it needs a revolution. It needs a revolution of human rights in order to realize what once has been written down in that declaration. Second, um I don't like the notion of you describing the victims as being instrumentalized, of being, let's say, the helpless, uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, the being victimized again. I mean, many of those whom we cooperate with are political actors and they know they, they know their countries they know their situation and it's not because of the judgment they get uh, they get into new cycles of repression it's also because they go on the street they demonstrate they engage in many different ways and yes it's it's their own decision to throw themselves in this kind of legal and political battles obviously we also have a responsibility and obviously there are some lawyers and some organization which tends to in, which tend to instrumentalize and we have to be very uh, very very clear about that and we have to to try to expose that but um, as i said don't underestimate them and then um, the third thing is about yeah i mean um, I think the problem is the narrative about, uh, around litigation and about human rights litigation and not, not the, the litigation itself. If I have it clear what I can achieve, in a, if I build up a broader narrative than just the lawyer's narrative about I go from here to there and then this and that happened, if I build up a narrative which tries to explain the broader dimension of a, of a certain problem, um, I, can't, I can't fall in this trap. But I, I agree with you, often it's not the case. And so uh, you, you should talk about it much more than you do in order to, 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 to convince the lawyers, the human rights lawyers, the, the litigation organization. But at the same moment as you are saying, don't overestimate law and litigation, I would say don't underestimate it.
3: Excellent. Thank you both. Um, So I'd like to, uh, recognizing we haven't achieved complete consensus yet, um, I want to turn, if we can, taking account of the various reflections you made, to the question of how can we do better? How can human rights litigation be made more effective? What are modifications, corrections, things that can be done with its practice that can make it a more effective Enterprise in advancing the cause of human rights. And I, 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 I hear in your, in your comments um, one, one observation that I think you both share, which, if I hear you correctly, is litigators and those who work with them need to be less politically naive, I think was the phrase one of you used. And I think you, 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 you seem to both be looking at that. But I, I'd, I'd welcome further thoughts about what that would mean and other other suggestions you might make for the field about how i can do a better job you want to start off
0: yeah i mean uh, don't frame it as a as a as a as a legal procedure only i think i think that's the big probably the biggest mistake let lawyers talk about their work and uh, after 5 minutes everybody's bored about it and I think uh, and it's, it should be mobilizing instead of um, boring people. And uh, yeah. And um, and, and, and is, that, is that
3: because lawyers don't know how to talk about their work in a compelling way? What's the problem there?
0: <laughs> no, no, look, um, I try to be as honest as possible but I don't say any I don't say everything I think about lawyers here um, that would that would definitely go too far no uh, <laughs> I mean we all had to go through a certain brainwash I mean the the studies the the the, the study of of law is is a kind of brainwashing and 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 that yeah I'm sorry to say that that clear. I mean, you have to you have to you have to at the same time um, study in a mostly, mainly in a very boring setting with boring people and with people who are definitely work for the other side. Now
3: you're not referring to anyone here
4: or this school not. or any, no, no. Thank no.
0: you. No, the hurty school and the money—it no, no, no mention of that. Of course not. How would I? How would I? No, I'm happy to be here. No, no. But you have to—you have to study a material um, where which bores you at end, uh, and also, I mean, you have to study a law which you may m- most many parts of the law you have to contradict. You want to reform. You want to change. You want to abolish. Um, and in order to do that, I, I think you have to swallow a big portion of, of, of yeah, I don't know, uh, of, yeah, it, it's, it's tough, it's tough. And only, I mean, only few uh, come out of that and, and are then still in the position to to struggle, to struggle and and to stand the ambivalence of law and to stand this contradiction, to be at the same time a good lawyer means to argue within existing established law, but also think of a, of a more utopian world.
3: You, you have one of following. <clears throat> Basha, any, any, any reflections on what we can be doing better? How we can, is, is it possible, notwithstanding your deep skepticism, to in fact? change the way this is done to achieve more progress, more results?
2: Now, firstly, I don't brainwash my
3: students. <laughs> no, no. Um, you're,
0: you're not teaching law. It's
2: interdisciplinary, as I <laughs> Okay, I, I will leave the positives to to the crowd who also were clapping. Let me just stay uh, with with a few more problems here. Now, the first is uh, there there are some serious serious structural constraints at the moment in relation to strategic human rights litigation. Uh, We see this at the European Court of Human Rights, but it's not only at the European Court of Human Rights, but also at the Inter-American Court, at the African uh, human rights system, at the United Nations. The access to these institutions is, is shrinking. Their economic sources are being cut by a lot of the states. Uh, they have become incredibly a lot more politicized, uh, so we we kind of think you know if you can' if you fail domestically, you go to these supranational human rights institutions. This has been a massive engine for strategic human rights litigation globally. But what we see now is that so if you fail domestically because these judges are biased and you know conservative, you take it up globally. Our global human rights regime is under a serious pressure they 're becoming really uh, you know not very interested in taking the cases they're they 're quite a lot more hostile. Uh, to things that they wouldn't have been in the 1970s and 60s, so this is a really big this is a really big challenge uh, I think for human rights strategic litigators about what happens globally to the to the regimes that we have set up. Can we change it through more strategic litigation before these courts? So you know we take more and more cases and knock on their doors and so on and so forth. I'm not so sure because the the problems are coming back are, are, are deeply political um, just look at the you know the european court of human rights and their new inadmissibility policies how restrictive they have become on exhaustion of domestic remedies how technical how formal how boring uh, they they have become uh, in relation to cases coming from hungary uh, coming from uh, coming from turkey for example so We need to think about this. I think in in terms of how can we do better, I think we need to know the wider environment or wider judicial institutions, what they are, what their constraints, what's happening. So I think interdisciplinary. I think uh, strategic human rights litigators, they have to go interdisciplinary. They have to understand what, uh, what, what these dynamics are. Uh, and not say, oh, I will take my case to Costa Rica to San Jose, and you know, I, I don't think these are uh, any more um, sort of the right answers. Everything else that you can, strategic human rights litigators do uh, can do internally: hooking up with uh, transnational uh, and local movements, hooking up with more lawyers, hooking up with uh, with more groups. Uh, that's very expensive. Um, that requires a lot of time, a lot of resources, uh, a lot of funding uh, in order to get better. Uh, and I think this is another trap for strategic human rights litigation. To do it really well, uh, you need a lot of money. It's, it's, it's actually, you know, to have a global kind of a way of it, it's, it's very expensive so only a few of the greatest i think will be able to survive uh, in these very constrained funding uh, types of situations
3: you've just painted a no b-
2: claps <laughs> no
3: claps right <laughs> that that's a pretty that's a pretty bleak picture looking forward um, and i wonder um if, if others share that. I mean, I heard someone recently, if we start asking what is the future of human rights litigation, um, it's been suggested that um, law has played a central role in the human rights firmament to date. Um, treaties, conventions, statutes are the foundation. And the notion, the very notion that human rights are more than an aspiration, that they are legally binding has been central to the cause of human rights, the advocacy cause of human rights. And the role of lawyers has been central in fulfilling that ambition of making those rights real. But the very centrality of law and litigation and the use of legal tools until now, it has been suggested, doesn't necessarily mean that the future of human rights is a legally-centered future. Maybe more than public interest lawyers, we need public interest techies, or public interest economists, or public interest climatologists. Any views?
0: Yeah, we need them all. yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean how often should I say it's a it's a legal as well as a political struggle. And don't blame the techies that they try to survive in a in a completely hostile environment where the Googles and Amazons and, and Facebooks are taking control of their data. They still try to find their spaces and they try to, to, to build up little, you know, islands connect to each other, and the same thing has to be done by the lawyers, but in conjunction with the techies and of course uh, in the best case uh, 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 connected to political and social mobilization but if not you still have a role to play as a lawyer I mean there was no movement around Guantanamo there was no political movement and the lawyers still had a big responsibility And, and and they did well they did well although they might have lost cases, although not all, the, uh, not all what uh, has been written down in judgment was later on implemented, but it was a, it, it was a very big and important contribution to the worldwide struggle against torture. And uh, yeah, and there was no movement around, and so um, don't. I, I think this generalizing is 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 not really helpful. I mean, um, law can play m- many different roles in many different environments, and so at the same time, you you might be right for 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 Hungary or for for Turkey that this is probably not the point to mobilize more lawyers and to run against the closed door of the of the Strasbourg court, but to try to be more creative and inventive, that's, that's clear, but in other situations it might still be helpful. So I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest it to each and everybody, but I wouldn't also generalize and rule it out.
3: Although to be fair, the number of places that are moving in the direction of Hungary and Turkey seems to be greater than the number that are moving in the other way.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that is, I mean, compare the situation of now to the situation of the 90s where we had Rwanda and and, and Yugoslavia, where we had uh, crimes against humanity in Turkey, in the Philippines, and wherever. Or, you know, talk about 50 years ago, the the, the wonderful times of 1968 and the students' movement. The world was in absolute disorder at that time. And I mean, how can you deny that? There was never a golden age of human rights worldwide, it was never like that, and it will never be like that. We live in an imperfect world. And the question is only, do I resist or not? Do I resist open-minded? Do I try to, to name the contradictions? Do I face them or not?
3: So, I hear that view, Wolfgang, and similar to what you just said about the Guantanamo litigation. The act of resistance, litigation as an act of demonstrative, expressive resistance, is itself of enormous political value, regardless of its success in the judicial forum.
0: Sure. In a situation like, like Guantanamo.
3: Do you share the view that was just propounded, that the future means fewer um, uh, strategic human rights litigators and litigating organizations because the, it's just getting harder and the environment is getting more hostile and there just going to be not as many resources available?
0: History is an open process and it's up to us to make, to make it not happen like she described. And obviously, again, no, I'm, I'm sorry, it's, this is stupid. It is so banal. I mean, it's up to us to change the world or it wouldn't change if we sit there as a spectator and say, Oh, let the lawyers struggle and let's wait for the judgment. Everybody who has this vision is, in fact, naive and apolitical, obviously. And obviously, I, the, the, if if we feed into that paradigm, that's very bad. What we try to do the other way around—that's that's that's the one thing. And the other thing is, look, the whole dystopian vision which is now communicated, is probably made up for that because we're not hearing any good news. We're not hearing uh, good news about political mobilization in countries which are not reported about. We're hearing the bad news. and And we're hearing so many bad news that it's difficult to digest them. It's difficult to analyze the political situation. It's difficult to really still maintain the attitude of a, a, let's say, of a thinking political activist in those times. And I think that's part of the problem. So we have to be aware that the, the communication, uh, um, me, the media are monopolized, and there is, a, there, there is a tendency to spread around dystopian news. And there are people who are interested in doing that to make us powerless. And that is something we have to resist as well, without painting, painting a, a pink picture of the world. That's very clear. But what I hear now, also from lawyers, from legal scholars, especially from government lawyers, is, look, um, we, you all promised the golden age of, of human rights in the 1990s, and what's happening now, look look at the disastrous landscape. Yeah, so that's that, and who is, who, who is responsible for that? that's the civil society, that's the lawyers, that's the social movements, um, which created a certain expectation and that's definitely wrong leave it to us, to the states to those who know about to handle these very difficult and complex problems so it's rather um, uh, uh, it's rather um, a, a subject which you should, should should leave in the hands of us the diplomats and the, and the international you know legal community than to civil society and I think that's the wrong take
3: although I, I mean I, I do want to open this up um, very shortly so I'd like people to actually take issue with things that you've heard or advance the conversation in any way you'd like, but I do want to push you once more, Wolfgang. I don't think, I think a lot of people would say, of course, it's not a question of whether to resist or simply accept a dismal political reality. But I think the question here is, what's the best, what's the most effective means of resistance and furthering human rights? And is it, in fact, through use of litigation, given that people have to make choices? There are resource constraints, there are time constraints, and people have to make fundamental choices about what's the best way to advance their political causes, and maybe in co- certain contexts, litigation is not the most effective way. Dot. Excellent. Anything else you want to add before we open it up?
2: Um, I actually, uh, I actually think we need more lawyers. <laughs> No, I I actually do. I mean, this this sort of thing of, uh, you know, I mean, again, coming back to be a little bit critical on this sort of human rights lawyer bashing. uh, So to to sort of blame it on the human rights lawyers, uh, sort of uh, let's do the critique of that. It just doesn't add up. I think, uh, very well in terms of whether you can really attribute some of the issues. Uh, I've just depicted you a very weak picture of human rights lawyering. And I think the reality is that the human rights lawyering is done through massive political uh, and other constraints. And then to have a discourse that blames everything on the human rights lawyers, just doesn't add up because you asked earlier why are they sort of making a lot of noises about these things? I think we have a very weak role to play. Uh, we have to understand that. But if somebody starts bashing on the human rights lawyers, um, I think that's that's when you, we have to also resist. I mean it is not a big deal what we're doing. I think we, we need to understand it. So if someone attacks you, you have to say, what have I done to to, to, to deserve this? I would also think that, you know, we need more be mass human rights lawyering. <laughs> I think we need, um, you know, not just a, as a specialization. I think uh, I would really push back against this being a special thing that, you know, there are all these other lawyers and now there are the specialized human rights lawyers. So we need to think about how to make human rights law a lot more of a, Part of a a more general lawyering experience, um, not only in Germany but in lots of other jurisdictions. Um, I think maybe understand how weak a role we can play, but but have more of it.
3: So you've got some pretty there's pretty some contrasting views on the table here, folks. Um, Be modest about the enterprise, or we're we're going to advance utopia through the enterprise. what strikes you as strange? What strikes you as right? What's the conversation missing? I see a comment here. Please, could you just identify yourself? And, and we'll take, if we've got, we'll take a few comments and then come back to the panel. Yeah. Uh,
5: I'm Olga Gnizdilova from and Justice Initiative, a legal director, and work mostly in Russia and Ukraine and I want to support both of you, and thank you so much for You can't very do that, you have to support I, I, I one or the other. I will explain, I will explain how. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for a very hard discussion, and I will say that um, maybe you know, Russia, um, Russian politicians uh, discuss now the possibility to leave the Council of Europe and the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, and we as NGO decided to make an information campaign and find about 10 judgments which uh, influence uh, Russian legislation which changes it um, in a proper way. And we succeeded to find these uh, 10 um, areas of law which were changed after the European Court of Human Rights Judgment. It's mostly not political equations. it's equations of property rights and uh, um, uh, terms of detention and conditions of detention, rights of mental uh, illness uh, people, etc, etc. Uh, that's why, why we decide that um, it's, um, we need to make a strategic litigation. But uh, we have an um, excellent case law on um, freedom of assembly, uh, but nothing changes because it's a very political question for Russia. And maybe you've heard uh, yesterday more than 500 people were detained on a peaceful assembly in Moscow. Uh, so it's another side of this problem. Uh, they do not want to change... Uh, some political um, sensitive um, areas. But we still uh, need to make this case law uh, to find the moment, the political moment, when they uh, will be ready to do it. And we will have a good case law to show that it's time uh, and you have some legal basis. So I think uh, we have to work more and uh, just wait for a moment when they, the politicians will be ready.
3: Thank you. And if I could just follow up to, to ask you, if I may, you believe the litigation before the European Court of Human Rights from Russia is effective?
5: Yeah, it's really effective because we have 10 um, areas of law which were changed after the uh, European Court of Human Rights judgments. So.
3: Thank you very much. We had a comment here.
6: Um, hello. Uh, good evening. I'm Laura Green from uh, Unfair Tobacco. And um, yeah, very much, uh, thank you very much for the great debate. Um, I have to say I am, uh, although we have a backlash on human rights worldwide, uh, it still gives me hope um, to work with human rights arguments and um, to see human rights litigation cases around the world. Uh, We are part of a global movement that um, links tobacco control to human rights specifically to the human rights to health and life. And so around these rights, um, we see more and more support around the world. Um, my question, uh, I would really like to hear your opinion on this. So we, ha- we are in this global movement, and um, partners from uh, countries that, that are like Hungary or Turkey, illiberal democracies or authoritarian regimes, they say, um, we can't really use human rights arguments or human, even human rights litigation to support tobacco control in our countries, um, for various reasons. Uh, it could weaken our position because human rights is not a word that we could—it's a dirty word, kind of. It—it uh, it is also—it feels like we are trivializing. Um, other severe human rights uh, violations of the state, like going uh, public in Turkey, uh, asking the government to, to implement tobacco control, control legislation because of the human right to health. And then the government could come up and say, yeah, uh, we, are, we are doing something on this. This has happened uh, in Hungary, for example. We are doing something on the human right to health. We are uh, implementing tobacco control. And at the same time, they are uh, denying people uh, freedom of speech. So how can we still do this kind of advocacy and even human rights litigation on the human right to health while at the same time uh, these other severe violations are happening?
3: Great. Thank you for that question. Yeah, we've got a comment there.
7: Great. Uh, very briefly, my name is Daniel Quiroga. Uh, thank you very much for this very interesting debate. I have two quick questions. The first one is, as this discussion clearly showed, we normally assume strategic litigation to be progressive, to have radical outcomes, as you put it. And I'm very concerned because what's what, something I see is illiberal strategic litigation, or let's say regressive strategic, strategic litigation. I'm thinking in a recent case in Colombia, where I'm from, about a Catholic trying to use the Colombian constitutional court, the jewel of the Global South litigation, System to limit abortion weeks, for instance, or the recent Perenishek decision of the European Court of Human Rights on the Armenian genocide, for instance. So, is this something you see happening too, or what are the? Is maybe the future strategic litigation having the right to litigate before courts? And then the second question, very briefly, what is the potential of consumer rights litigations? Because mostly when we talk about human rights, we think about constitutional international law. And I'm increasingly thinking that maybe actions we think as, constitu- as consumers could be an interesting avenue to re- for, for reform, particularly what pertains to economic questions. Thank you very much.
3: Super. Um, let's pause there. Well, I've seen more. We'll come around. But- you want to take those on? So we've got I mean, a very practical question of how one can advance the very important cause against tobacco without, without undercutting protection of other rights or legitimizing governments who are repressive on those rights. Illiberal strategic litigation, I love the phrase. In some ways, one could say that only underscores this stuff is valuable because the, the, our opponents are in fact doing it really effectively. Maybe not. And advice on consumer rights litigation.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, we thought we we're the only ones on the field um, and framing our work as uh, strategic human rights litigation. This is obviously not the case. I mean, uh, uh, we have this kind of litigation, you know, the counter human rights litigation, however you want to call it, everywhere and every time. I mean uh, every corporation which has been sued for workers rights or for violation of human rights has uh, 10 times or 100 times as, as many lawyers as, as our side have so um, it's it's part of the problem of the power relations that they have strong you know legal departments and so it, sh- it shouldn't be a surprise and this is why I think uh, we should be aware of it and we should uh, embed our legal legal work in a a broader uh, social and political context, which allows us to link to progressive leftist um, movements in in our countries. But I think um, it's it's a very dangerous tendency, not only in, in, in Colombia or in Latin America, but I mean in Spain. Uh, in Israel when you talk to Israeli or Palestinian human rights lawyer the, the the pure you know amount of litigation against them paralyzes them and it's same is in Spain and even uh, even a number of cases in the. US are spe- specifically targeting you know lawyers you know the, the the chevron the lawyer who took the chevron against Ecuador case was basically destroyed our colleague Phil Schiner, who took the torture Iraq cases in uh, in in the US UK Was destroyed. So it it is it's 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 not that you are let's say somewhere you know in the space. Uh, it's you are in the middle of a of a of a struggle about power, consumers' rights, as well as the rights uh, um, um, you were you were mentioning. Um, of, co- of course, we should we should we should connect human rights topics um, to to and uh, to 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 the other rights and i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't see a hierarchy i wouldn't i would have a rather Pragmatic view, and for example in Germany, where we have no real uh, tools for public interest litigation, consumers' rights is one of the few tools, one of the few door openers. So we don't hesitate to use uh, to, to to use consumer rights and work with con- consumer rights associations. And uh, and I mean uh, both of Olga and Laura, both of your contributions. I think uh, I, I have not. I, I don't, don't have to add anything. It's it's like it's it's each situation deserves a thorough um, analysis and how 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 the use of law um, can be made more effective and can be framed better. And it's a, it's 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 not a one size fits all you know discussion which we have to lead.
3: Thank you, Wolfgang. Basch, you want to?
2: Um, I mean. There are a very long list of rights um, and if you know and not everyone works on a whole set of rights. So if you're working on right to health, um, and if you think that a policy is uh, is really respecting some of the requirements of the right to health, not just public health in general, but the right to health, um, and if it's a positive for a, a repressive government, it is a positive. Um, you know I don't think it makes it a less negative for that particular right. Uh, I, I guess the bigger question is, do you say things about other rights um, as an organization, right? I mean, that's that's a separate, uh, I think that's a separate question uh, for you to, to think about. This illiberal uh, strategic litigation, of course, there's also illiberal third party interventions now that's a good research project. Uh, you know, there are lots of organizations who also do third-party interventions in relation to, especially women's reproductive rights. That's we've seen that a lot as well. So we, we need, probably we need to take note of it. Um, and of course, I think for one, maybe litigation of that. Maybe it's worth thinking whether you can do a third-party intervention to maybe counter that, uh, you know, or to cultivate those types of institutional opportunities. Uh, might be a way of thinking about it.
3: If you're advocating for a third-party intervention, you're kind of undercutting your skepticism about litigation. But that's okay. I just got carried away. That's okay. So we we had Mona, we had a comment here and a comment there and then one there. Yeah.
8: Hi, my name is Mona. I'm a human rights lawyer from India. Vasak, your excellent points have convinced me we need a lot more of strategic litigation. And uh, and the reason I say it, uh, if I put everything together, so I focus on gender and business and human rights, business and human rights being the latest buzzword. Um, There are two reasons if I crunch everything. One is the clinical elimination of trade unions, which where you could advocate for so much more than what a court would have given you. And we have basically annihilated that institution. Uh, so you do not really have any more spaces to advocate but for courts. Uh, the second being that we are all living in compromised democracies. I mean, India just elected a fundamentalist right wing back into power. Um, but also the fact that uh, Indian courts, or Bangladeshi courts, are, or Vietnamese Cambodian courts are not equipped to do enough, A, and B, There is much more possibility of corporate accountability in institutions in Europe. Um, However, that's the transnational strategic litigation or international strategic litigation that needs to happen because we need to bring those issues out of these particular hubs of exploitation into where we actually can get the relief and where we can still have the advocacy that, hey, what applies for the German standards of working conditions is equally what should be applying to Indian or Cambodian factories, because fast fashion that you're consuming uh, is based on on exploitation. And I say say that with complete understanding of the fact that now the biggest emerging markets are China and India. I think that's the crisis of human rights movement, the next step. Like, how do you advocate for human rights in China? but i would want to know you i mean uh, your opinion about this because ecchr is doing this kind of work so what what is your idea when you take up this kind of work
4: thank you please uh, dr isin demir once i used to teach uh, human rights then i've been a victims of human rights violation and i'm a political asylum here uh, i want to make a small comment but i completely agree with professor chala because I can read uh, the Judgment of Human Rights uh, Court in Brussels, and uh, you know, there is a rejection of, of applications from Turkey on the basis of uh, not existing uh, domestic remedies. But on the other hand, there is another judgment from the United Nations Human Rights Committee, Smetosilik Judgment, and it says that uh, there is no uh, domestic remedies in Turkey. So as a victim or as a person who wants to defend his rights, I applied to obviously Brussels, but uh, I've been rejected because of the domestic remedies. And I've been waiting for the court. Maybe I'll wait 10 years. I don't know. And I just start wondering how this course can be a remedy for these kind of violations. Thank you
3: very much. Thank you very much. We had a comment here and then one back there.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm Sorka McLeod. I'm a visiting professor here at Hertie. And um, I'm also a member of the UN working group on mercenaries and private military and security companies. And whilst I I really appreciate Wolfgang's comments on how we should be radical in in relation to ensuring that human rights are protected, I think we also have to remember that human rights itself is not radical. Human rights are conservative and they represent the lowest common denominator of what states will actually um, agree to. And I think in the area that I specialize in, which is business and human rights and um, uh, particularly in the security industry, what we see is that strategic litigation doesn't work because human rights simply doesn't encompass those particular actors. But we can also see it with other actors, foreign actors, foreign fighters. Um, international human rights law just, just doesn't, uh, doesn't help us in that situation and um, the, the lady from, was it Mona I think your, your name was, when she's saying we have to, we, we should look to Europe um, to try and litigate um, against uh, business actors who are violating human rights those strategic litigations are consistently failing because the law, because international human rights law and human rights law doesn't um, uh, take a, an expansive view. It was, it was established to deal with state violations of human rights, and it hasn't developed in a way to deal with all these other actors who are uh, involved in human rights violations.
3: Thank you. Before you yield the mic, can I just ask you, when you say that those litigations are consistently failing, we heard a notion, or at least I, I thought I heard a notion earlier, that failing in court doesn't mean failing. The act of resistance itself is a contribution to struggle, which is a longer political aim. But you don't think that applies in this field?
1: Well, I think what we're seeing happening is that areas of law other than human rights law are perhaps being successful. So we're seeing tort law, for example, being used. We're seeing that in the English courts. So the recent Vedanta decision... uh, Well, it's it's not a a decision on acceptance of jurisdiction is... Um, is about tort. It's not It's not fundamentally about human rights, even if the consequence is that it's going to uh, pr- uh, give some sort of remedy for those uh, individuals whose rights have been violated. And I think that's, for me, that's a problem. It's, they're not, they are human rights cases, but they're not being litigated as human rights cases. And I think it means that it, it narrows the possibilities. Because if your your particular human rights violation has not been committed by by an actor whose actions fit within that very narrowly defined scope, then then you don't get a remedy.
3: So whole fields in which strategic litigation doesn't work?
0: Of course. I mean, uh, yeah, but... um, Take take, uh, Mona's... uh, point And uh, obviously, uh, if the trade unions would be stronger, um, the expectations for the enforcement of social and economic rights for workers in the, in the textile industry and in other industries in, 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 in India and in Pakistan and Bangladesh, would be uh, would be bigger. That's that's no doubt about it. And so, obviously, it's it's it it it's, it should be a huge task for the trade unions, especially the trade unions based in Western Europe, who are as well as the social democratic parties on decline, partly because of a, yeah of a of a of a fast globalization and digitalization process, and who never thought global never thought global we're never ever in solidarity with the trade unions in, in countries of this global south so this is a big problem but I think I mean and this would deserve a little bit more time I think the point you made is very interesting because um, our experience with this kind of litigation against corporations um, is interesting because the corporations are here at least in Western europe not as prepared as they are for example in the us and so to bring the problem home might not end in a in a, in a in a in a victory in the courtroom but it might help the cause and not only because of an act of resistance but it helps to to explain the situation of workers in the textile industry and so study the last five or uh, five years years um, after the Rana Plaza and the, and the Karachi fire um, disaster in, in Pakistan and in Bangladesh it was very interesting and, I, I, and we played a role in that but obviously it was also it was it was journalists who went back and forth it was uh, also an emancipation process of workers of affected workers of people who were basically shattered when 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 the fire accidents happened and through a common effort of a of a trade union in pakistan of a development uh, organization like medico international of a clean clothes campaign and of us and they they, 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 uh, they found themselves after five years as political actors who, who stand in a courtroom in Germany and say yes we want justice in our individual case but we also want justice for all we want just and fair working conditions in our countries and obviously that might not change it but it, it can be an impulse it can be a, a kind of rupture it, it can it can in the best case mobilize. But it needs much more than lawyers and, and some people who are in struggle. Um, and, but that cannot be organized by us. So again, I think we have to be very much aware of our role and in the best case, be open and accept, uh, accessible for this kind of mobilization. But we cannot mobilize ourselves.
3: I see a strange convergence happening. Masha? <laughs>
2: I'm really struggling to <laughs> remain in my skeptical position. So <laughs> you don't have to. You <laughs> need to. Um, I, 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 I won't go into uh, some of the answers. And of course, the, the problem with the, the statist nature of international human rights law. Uh, I think we're going to be discussing this um, for a few more decades because it is under pressure, and there are very good reasons why it is under pressure. But it's not clear whether the courts are going to do It for us. Um, I mean, they may or they may not. As you said, you know, you go through a tort, you go through some historic, uh, God-forgotten legislation in the US, uh, and so on. Um, well, it's not very forgotten, but you know, quite old one-the Alien Torts Claims Act, or something like that. Um, in some areas, there are also these doctrinal boundaries. Um, uh, and how to think about them, and how to kind of think through that—whether courts are our allies or not—I think that's a that's a question. Now, with with the case that you you mentioned about going to the European Court of Human Rights, uh, under normal, you know, 20 years ago, we would have thought that this court is your ally, uh, but it is not because you know the human rights courts, which we haven't discussed that very much, but uh, are under a lot of case pressure. The the number of cases have increased exponentially in supranational institutions precisely because the domestic uh, judicial and the political institutions are dysfunctional. So the more dysfunctional a domestic institution gets, the more kind of spillage of, of cases that you get at the supranational level. And over time, these courts have created these sort of defensive strategies of not Wanting to deal with these cases properly, and uh, and your case has fell into a very unfortunate, uh, unfortunate timing. And you you have the right to say what you say, but it is very unclear when and how uh, this court will deal with violations in big numbers. Uh, and this is obviously a different kind of a problem than uh, the problem that was raised by by, by Mona.
3: Basik, I might just suggest um, a compliment to that. I mean, I think the fact that we're seeing increasing numbers of applications and cases filed at regional and international tribunals reflects not only the dysfunctionality of national systems. Oh, here's our hero on the Botswana decision. Congratulations, sir. But But also increasing demand coming up from everywhere. I mean the fact is whatever critiques have been offered whatever criticisms have been launched whatever questions have been raised there are more and more people going to the court to complain now maybe that is a mistaken enterprise but you know we are seeing this around the world we are seeing this happening in kyrgyzstan and senegal and in indonesia i mean it's happening everywhere there is a people are taking these complaints to judicial fora so that is a reality that we, we 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 see and we have to deal with as we're having having these discussions a lot of people seem to have gotten the gospel of wolfgang we have time for one or two more points please go ahead
1: Thank you, Claire uh, de Tassini-Schutze, an international lawyer freshly arrived from The Hague. Um, Thank you very much for this most interesting debate. Um, And you've addressed very well some of the limits and constraints of strategic litigation as well as potential avenues for improvement. And I'm just curious to hear your views on and possibly what your own experience has been um, with international arbitration as a potential or potentially valuable alternative to strategic litigation. And this is somewhat related to the point you made, Mr. Kellick, about the Rana building fire um, and uh, the um, ensuing Bangladesh Accord. Um, thank you.
3: Thank you very much. We have one other comment or question, in, please. Yep.
9: Uh, thank you so much. um It was a pleasure to listen to you. My name is Julia, and I guess my question uh, can be addressed to both of you um, During your talk, I was thinking about like how we plan our strategic litigation and our uh, advocacy strategy and things like this. so um I thought that when we prepare our case and when and when we want our case to be heard by like everyone. We don't put all of our efforts just um, writing only one petition to one court or to one body. We try everything. We try uh, local advocacy, international advocacy. We are trying to refer to reach out the UN bodies uh, and things like this. And when we do this, um, we are often incu- accused in uh, forum shopping. So my question is how to avoid this kind of accusations or how to resist them. Thank you.
3: While engaging in the practice of forum shopping, I gather, is the point. No, that's fair. Arbitration? Forum shopping?
0: Of course we do forum shopping and... uh I mean, uh, in a in a in a perfect world, we had a perfect functioning judicial system, where everybody who feels violated in his or her rights can go to an accessible court. But we don't live in such a world. So, what shall I do? Uh, shall I leave a case uh, 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 unlitigated? Shall I leave it untried or not? No, I, I look for I look for for possibilities. Um, for legal possibilities and yeah I mean yeah I, I know the argument it's often made by uh, German legal scholars who say you know we have these cases uh, the, the, the war crimes cases the Kundus case and the Barbering case where, where you know German legal scholars would make the point no the German tort law is not made for this exceptional situation we have to wait for the establishment of a very special code for this situation yeah I mean and we would wait and wait and wait um and so of course no we 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 use all possibilities and um and 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 Sarah, I, I would say um broader understand i i'm not i'm not i i don't only need to use human rights law i lose use the law i can get to promote a, 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 a human rights issue and human rights, as I say, in a broader sense, not only what is meant as as, as, as human rights arbitration. Um, that's a very difficult one. I mean, we have only bad experience, but that doesn't prevent us from exploring further fields. The problem is uh, it's high, it's expensive. It can get very expensive. So in the one case we were thrown out, you know, even we were even not admitted and then had to pay um, <laughs> 10,000 euro Um it's it's, it's it's difficult it's diff it's it's one of those tools where you have to be very much aware and uh, last but not least I would want to make a comment about your you know massive use of um, Of of litigation in very different countries, which can also be, in in Bazak's sense, uh, pointed uh, uh, interpreted as as uh, as a kind of uh, people uh, have no trust, no more trust in the political process, and so they uh, they want to. uh, they, they throw their last hope into court, but you can also see it in a different way, and that is um, that their struggle, which was formerly a political struggle based on political and moral arguments, is now also a struggle about rights. So they, by going to a court, they say, I'm entitled to this right, and I want my rights. And I think that's a very big and important step forward.
3: Thank you very much. Basha
2: I mean, just a very tiny, um, tiny point that touches on forum shopping and arbitration is is about remedies. Um, Remedies are are very important things. So what what can you get from from what kind of uh, forum? So one thing is, of course, winning a case or winning an arbitration award, which is very difficult. Uh, The structures are not that easy. But then also, what do you get? So do you just get monetary compensation? Uh, do you uh, are you able to get any general remedies that are beyond uh, what you can get as reinstitution or an apology or something? So I would also, you know, encourage to 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 sometimes think about that. There are certain cases you just want to have them, win or lose, maybe. Uh, but in most other cases, you're also making very big choices about. Uh, what kind of remedies c- can you get and whether you can get any transformative remedies. Um, and the less you can get them, obviously the lesser effect a judgment has beyond that particular uh, individual.
3: And just uh, maybe one brief comment on arbitration. I mean, I, I think one could perhaps raise the critique that by participating in an arbitration system, at least in some, you are contributing to and legitimatizing the privatization of justice itself is that something that's appropriate for a rights advocate to do? Those are tough choices as well, obviously. Unfortunately, we have to end this here. But I want to thank uh, Basha and uh, Wolfgang and all of you for a an enlightening discussion. This is obviously not the end, but only the beginning. And we've thankfully heard that HERTI is going to be sponsoring more of these, as will all of our organizations, I think. Um, it's an important set of issues that we all have to contend with, but thank you very, very much.
1: Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herty-school.org.